Our dear Heavenly Father, Almighty God, how great and holy you truly are. We humble ourselves before your mighty throne and we recognize our frailties, our shortcomings, our transgressions. And we penitently ask that you would forgive us of all sin that stands between us and you this evening. Cleanse us again in accordance with your mercy and your faithfulness. And Father, help us to bring forth fruits of repentance. We pray now, God, that you will hear our prayer this evening as we come with gratitude that we have the help and the opportunity to be here together. And how valuable that truly is to be with those of like precious faith. To be part of your family, your body of holy believers. Thank you for loving us so much that you made the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. And you sent Jesus to be our atonement. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for salvation and hope. We thank you for the promise of heaven. We thank you also for your word that has been preserved through the ages and we are so blessed in this country to have easy access to it and have it in our hands so that we can engrave it on our hearts and in our minds. Bless our study. Guide our thoughts and our words that they may be in harmony with truth and that you will be glorified and your name exalted. We pray for all the teachers tonight that you would Give them health and clarity that they may teach your word in such a way will prick hearts and instruct them in your way and they may draw closer to you. We pray for our number that are unable to be with us. We have those who are homebound. We have others dealing with illnesses, others recovering from surgeries or awaiting surgery. We also have of our number those who are grieving for the losses of loved ones. We are grateful, God, that you are a God that sees, a God that takes note, a God that cares, and a God that answers the cries and the concerns and the groanings of your people. Place your healing and comforting hand on each one as you see their need. Bless our time together tonight. May you be glorified and may we all be built up in the one true faith to be brighter lights to you. In Jesus' name, our King, we pray. Amen. It is so good to be with you tonight and appreciate the opportunity to engage in this you know, series of studies you know, as we try to uh, learn from the book of Exodus and to glean from it lessons that are applicable for us today, today in our modern times. There is a packet uh, and there are some hard copies still on the edge of the AV room uh, if you want it in some other format, you're going to have to notify me. I'm not going to hunt you down. Uh, so you reach out to me uh, and let me know, you know uh, what you need, and I'll do my best to get that to you. 
But let's get into our study. As we look at Exodus, the first thing we notice that it is a continuation of God's account of Genesis. You know, it, it's, you know, when you think about it, um, for example, I find it interesting in the Hungarian Bible, you know, the names of the, of the first five books of, of the Old Testament are not by our names. They're not the English names. And it's simply called the first, second, fourth, fifth books of Moses. And so basically you've got the writings of Moses and you have a continuation of this account that you know, the Spirit is guiding Moses to record for us. And so uh, as Brother Leland ended uh, with uh, the, Jacob's family uh, and Joseph in Egypt and the death of Joseph, we pick up with that same theme with God's people in the land of Egypt and the story of God continues. And as we go through this, what, what my kind of my personal goal and aim in our discussion and in our in our review of this book is not simply to look at the events or at the people themselves, even though those facts and those accounts are vital to our understanding of God working out His scheme for mankind. But to look at the book of, uh, book of Exodus is not simply a story about Israel, but really it's more a, an account about God. And that's really what you, when you're reading and you're thinking about the questions, the just thought questions, to give you something to ponder for a little bit. I really want you to focus on the character of God, the hand of God that is at work. And, th- and so Exodus is really the idea of un- the unfolding of divine promises. And we have here in the early pages of this inspired account, God-inspired record, is you have the, the, the birth of the nation of Israel, and now God is going to present himself to that nation as their redeemer. He's the redeemer of his people. He's the redeemer of his children. He is a mighty, merciful deliverer. And so we begin with chapter 1, and our aim is simply to to span and scan the first four chapters and draw some lessons out of that. And so in these first four chapters, the outline suggests to you that we have God preparing Moses to lead the people. And so the leading of the people really begins there in chapter 5 when Pharaoh is being confronted and so you've got these first chapters kind of laying the groundwork. And so it starts off basically introducing to us that Jacob's family is in Egypt. Uh, and we already know that because of how you know, Genesis ends. But at this point in history, you know, Jacob's family is not just a, a, a family of 70 or so people. Jacob's family is a mighty nation. And you know, conservative dating suggests that you know, the timing uh, of this period is around 1450 B.C. You know, so that is an, an estimated uh, time period as we look forward to the events that will unfold to us later. But uh, as you look at these first few verses, the first thing I want you to note is, first of all, that God has proved that His Word is true. And you think about Genesis 15. What did, uh, what did He promise to... Abraham in the 15th chapter of Genesis, it's one of the can't, God is reiterating you know, the promise, but he says something very specific about the future of his descendants. And what did he say is going to happen to his descendants? Where, where are they going to be according to Genesis 15? You're going to have to talk loud. 
because you know I'm losing you know some hearing. So so please speak up. Uh, where did God say they're going to end up in Genesis 15? He doesn't say Egypt. Where did he say? A land that's not there. Some version may say they're going to be in a strange land. And he describes that situation there in Genesis 15. You know, so they're going to be in this land and they're going to be mistreated. Uh, but God then is going to deliver them out of that you know, strange land and out of that enslavement and bring them to the land that he is promising Abraham. And so when you begin here in chapter 1 of Exodus, what, what God is presenting is the fact my word is true. I told you this is where you're going to end up, and that's where you are. You are in this land of Egypt now. You know, some years, several years have passed since the time of Joseph. And now, you know, they're in this foreign country, and they're going to be mistreated. And so Abraham's descendants should begin to recognize and the probability is they don't, you know, so often seen throughout the history of Israel. They don't remember God's promises. They don't remember God's hand at work. And so they're there and God's word is being proven true. And what struck, one of the things that struck me in these first few verses is there when it's verse 6 and it says, Joseph died. He said, okay, here all the sons of Jacob ended up in Egypt. And he says, and he says, Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. Why do you think that is a striking thought? You know, why, do, you know, why do you think that is stated? Joseph died, and that generation died. Why? What has Genesis begun to reveal to us? Throughout its pages. It started with it and it ended with it. Leland you know, kind of indicated that the bookmarking of Genesis is, is this concept. And what's that? Death. And so, you know, you have man dying in the beginning of Genesis. And throughout the book of Genesis, they, they die. You come to Exodus. It hasn't changed. Men, men are dying. And so, yeah, so Jacob's family ends up in, in Egypt, and they are saved and spared because of God's care and wisdom through Joseph. But the bottom line is, every generation will die. And so throughout the book of, of Exodus and, you know, and throughout the, the, uh, the accounts of, of the Old Testament, again and again, it will tell you, so-and-so died. And so and so died. And so and so died. And often we are not told anything about their death. Now some are when you get into some of the, the kings and assassinations and so forth. But a lot of time it is okay, they lived this long and then they died. And so that is the predicament of mankind. And God is going to stress that over and over and over again throughout the inspired scriptures. Man will live and man will die. Even if you live as long as they did in Genesis 5. In each case, no matter how many years they lived, they all died. Because it's appointed for men to die. And it is this theme that ultimately you think of the whole picture of the Bible is addressing. Now Exodus is not going to expound a whole lot on that. Except remind us that death is very much part of our life. 
But I think it's an important thread to see woven throughout the Holy Scriptures. The reality of death and that it is part of this life. And we don't need to think it's such a strange thing and should be so shocked by it. Because it's going to happen. We just need to be ready for it. We need to live in such a way that we're right with God. And so Joseph, that generation, dies. And they're, they're multiplied into a mighty nation just as God had said, I like the phrase in verse 7 where it says, And that land was filled with them. It made me think of what God commanded Adam and Eve in the very beginning when he told to be fruitful and multiply. What, what was mankind supposed to do on earth? We were to fill the earth. You know, you know, a purpose of mankind is to fill you know, the boundaries of which God has given us to live within. And here Israel is doing that. God brought them into the land to, to spare them, to save them, to protect them. And what are they doing? They're filling it all in accord with God's plan. And so they're multiplying because God is blessing them. And God is fulfilling that promise to them. But then, you, you know, so you, they're introduced there in the first few verses. And then you get in the section. Now you, you have the scene of suffering. So they multiplied. They've been blessed. They've been taken care of. But things change. And such is time, is it not? Things are not going to just stay the same. And so things don't stay the same for Israel. And verse 8, here's a king that, you know, that uh, appears on the scene of Egypt. And he does not know Joseph. I suggest to you here that you know, in this section of chapter 1, verses 8 through verse 20, 22... As it describes Israel's suffering and how they're suffering severely, I would suggest to you that adversity can become an opportunity for strength. And God, and I think that ultimately that's God's intention here. You know, that you know, this adversity was something God foreknew. He, he knew. He, he told Abraham, they're going to be in a strange land and they're going to be mistreated. Yes, David. Say that again. Uh, when Joseph is, you know, mentioned about his death. Yes. Is it a, I guess, a foreshadowing saying with the new pharaoh? Your guardian angel's not here, I don't know. So now you're under the heel, if you will. Okay, you're saying, so with Joseph gone, you're not under the protection right. of Joseph anymore. I hadn't thought about that. And that, that gives us something to think about. Okay, things have definitely changed with, with the passing of Joseph. You know, you're, you don't, you're not going to have that, that kind of protection. Uh, I would suggest to you that you know the time between Joseph's death to now are, is, is several years, so, so there there has been some generations between. But uh, I think this is a good suggestion to say, okay, the good uh, what's the word I want to say? Uh, you know, the protection, the the guardianship, you know, that was under Joseph's uh, rule, that is no more, and so it sets the the stage or the environment for. You know, things to turn you know, badly for Israel in generations to come. Interesting thought. And so when you look here, you have, you have you know, Joseph is gone. A king comes who doesn't know Joseph. And what made me think about how great men, great men of history, eventually are always forgotten. 
even a savior like Joseph. Joseph's gone. And so generations have passed. And eventually a generation or more arise and they really don't know Joseph. Not only perhaps among the Israelites really don't remember Joseph well, but the Egyptians definitely don't. Here's a king that does not know the story of Joseph. Great men are, are, are eventually forgotten. And that's what happens. And, and you think about it, with the, for, the forgetting of, of Joseph, you know, what, what, what kind of made me think about it is the idea that ignorance leads to fear. You know, here's a king. He doesn't know Joseph. Because he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know Joseph's God. And because he doesn't know Joseph's God, he doesn't know what God did through Joseph. You know, and how God worked through Joseph to save Egypt as well as Israelites. And so here, here is a king that is ignorant of, of truth. And, and that ignorance has led him to fear you know, the Israelites, you know, which were not a threat at all. And but because of that fear, he is caused to conclude that they are a threat. And you think about how, how that works sometimes, even today. You know, uh, you know when, when we're ignorant of something and how fe- that breeds fear, and then that fear causes us to draw conclusions that are not always true or accurate. Nathan. got me thinking whenever you miss about you know great men are often forgotten and you know why you know and and, and I sort of take it in aspect of even God's word you know God's word is preserved God, God has made preparation for his word to be preserved through certain individuals remembering it and sharing it and mm-hmm. you know on that line the same thing with with men I think most importantly with, with God's word is go go even going back to the example of Josiah and Josiah thing. What happened? They lost the Bible. The, the, you know the lot, God's word got you know forgotten in, a, in mm-hmm. that sense, and then once it was found, it was you know brought you to know, their Josiah yeah. brought it back. Mm-hmm. But it's, if if God's word and or that even that and lots of men, if that's not if that legacy is not carried on and told, and you know, what was the purposes of the memorials when they crossed over Jordan? What did mm-hmm. God say? You know, and, and the same thing as the Exodus, you know, sets memorials so you're you'll remember. Yeah, so it'll be remembered. And that's that's when things are forgotten, is when people stop remembering and stop passing it down to generations. Right. And there's a lesson in that for us, you think, you know, in regard to God's word, you know, uh, the gospel of Christ, and and perhaps even servants of God in our in our modern times. Who have who have been exemplary or have been instructional, you know? And you know, how how do we remember? How do we pass on the good, the good seed, uh, and so that it's carried on in a positive way? And so, you know, I think you're right. You know, we've got to realize if if that's if it's not passed on in some format, in some way, it will be forgotten. Yeah, because you know, uh, time will wear it away. Eventually, you know, and so you, so you've got a king that you know, doesn't know. And so my first question was, what are the two things the Egyptians uh, do to try to diminish the might of Israel's numbers? What are the two things? 
Okay, they place the hardships of their labors, the rigorous labor, you know, and that becomes an enslavement. So that's the first thing that is kind of put on them. But, you know, God is blessing his people and God is multiplying his people. So that is not hindering them in any sense of the word. So then they got to try something else. So what's the next thing they try? Okay, you're right. They try to, you know, they try to kill all male uh, babies. And first, they go. You know, you know, the king calls you know, you know, the Hebrew midwives and instructs them in what they what he wants them to do. And when that doesn't work, he then eventually he just you know, opens it up you know, to everybody. And he basically tells all the Egyptians. And to me, I just imagine the, the almost a, a mob mentality here. You know, you know, let's just let everybody you know take uh, the law in their their hands. And he basically says, everyone can throw a Hebrew baby boy in the Nile River. So that's what the king suggests in his effort to diminish the numbers of, of Israel because those numbers to him were strength, was might. And so when you think about that idea, one of the questions I had is what lesson, though, do we learn from the Hebrew midwives? You know, what's the lesson we should learn from them? What is it? Yes, obey God rather than men. You know, that principle that is repeated in one form or another you know, in, throughout God's word, Old Testament and New Testament. And you think about the idea here of God's law regarding the value of a person's life. You know, and so this is just infant's life. And, and the value of that must be upheld above civil edicts. So basically that's what this is. The king... Has declared laws, and and he has given an edict to these women, and the women refuse to do that because they feared God. Some version may say they revered God. So it's more than the fact that they were afraid of God; they had respect for God because they had respect for God. They had respect for life, and they were not going to take that into the hands. So you think the idea of these two women. Who, who basically trust God so much to the risk of their own lives. Why was it a risk to, re, to refuse the king's instruction? What could have the king done? Kill him. You know, and, 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 and you think about ancient cultures and also even modern <laughs> governments. You know, it's not beyond that. That you know, you know, people in authority who have the power, you know, in the sense of, of, of civil power of life and death, that uh, you know, they, you know, when their law is not carried out, even when it's done for a righteous reason and a God reason, you know, their life can be taken because of that. And so these women put their lives on the line. And because they did that, not only were lives spared, but also how did God treat them? What did God do for these Hebrew women who showed such great courage of faith? Yeah. He made households for him or basically increased their family. So in my understanding of that is, you know, their families grew. And with the growing of, of your family, you know, 
There is strength in that. There's strength in numbers. And so God blessed them. And there should be a, a verse in Hebrews 11 that should come to mind when you read this a text. When it says, it's impossible, you know, you know, it's possible he's God without, without faith, but you must believe that he is, finish the rest of it. God is, that you believe that he is, and he's what? Someone said over here. Say loud. Yes, Derek. A rewarder of those who trust in him. And you see that being carried out here. So this story is not just about the, these women. Women of great faith. This, this account is about God. He is teaching us, you know, I will reward those who put their trust in me. Even to the point of risking their own lives. I will take care of them. And he does. He rewards these two women. And it's because of those wives, that's when you get the, the final thing. Okay, just throw the babies in the river. And so that sets the stage for, for chapter 2, which really is bringing us to the point of Moses. And so chapter 1 is all about laying some groundwork, kind of creating the, the backdrop, you know, the environment, you know, the culture in which Moses is born. Now, we have no idea... Now we read this account and you see, okay, you know, the Hebrew midwives were, you know, were not taking the lies uh, of the little boys. Uh, and so then all Egyptians had the authority to, to take a, a Hebrew you know, baby boy and throw it in the river. You know, you know, and so that's how chapter 1 ends. Chapter 2 ends, introduces us to Moses' parents. So the, the thought question, which really we don't have an answer, is how many babies did die? We don't know. But there's, there is a time span between the edict of chapter 1 and the saving of Moses. Between this, this span of time, however long or short it was, you know, the probability was there were children drowning in the Nile River. In Acts 7, you know, with Stephen's account of this history, he mentions about how Egypt made them expose their children you know, to death. And so it hints at the fact that, okay, all the baby boys weren't, weren't saved. Just like all the children were not saved in Bethlehem either. When God saved his son, Jesus, from Herod. And so we, we don't need to you know, think, oh, it, it's all turned out wonderful. No, the environment in which Moses is born and is saved is a, a violent environment. It is, uh, there is great uncertainty. There is fear. You know, there is death. It is in that scene that you know, we're introduced you know, to his parents in chapter 2 uh, and very quickly tells you about uh, the birth of Moses. You know, they'll tell us that oh, they already have two children. You know, Aaron and, Mir and Miriam are, are uh, you know, already on the scene uh, of history. But when you know, we're trying to see this, the story of Moses you know, as, as God's hand, once again, it's God at work here. 
And God is, is revealing his hand of what's, what, what is taking place you know, in, in this particular time period. And so you've got you know, the early life of Moses in the saving of Moses. You know, you know, he's hidden you know, for three months. Uh, he's put in a, a little waterproof basket and placed in the, in the reeds along you know, the banks of the Nile, uh, Nile River. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter you know, you know, uh, finds, finds you know, the baby. It, it, it's an when she opens, it up, the, opens up the basket, what's Moses doing? <laughs> well, what any baby would be doing at that point? <laughs> Crying. And I find that's interesting that God puts that little bit of, of in, interesting fact you know, about the reality of what's taking place here. And so, you know, then you got, you got the sister comes to, you know the story. It all unfolding here. My question is this, when you, when you think about it, how was God's providential care being manifested in this chapter? So you got all these different things happening. How is... God's providence being manifested in, in these unfolding of events. This is not chance. This is not accidental. You know, order is not being you know, you know, found in chaos. You know, what's transpiring here is the hand of God. And so how is God's hand, his care being manifested? Well, you know, you know, let's start with this. The idea of Hebrews 11, 23. Talks about by... Alex? Okay. Uh, yeah, Hebrews eleven twenty three. 23. Uh, when it talks about, you know, by faith, you know, what did Moses' parents do? Well, they hid Moses for three months. By faith. So how was hiding baby Moses an act of faith? If you're hiding your children, you're doing it. Why? What's the in, the original, you know, the initial uh, emotion involved here? You want them to live. There's some fear. There's some concern. There's some heaviness here. And so, and yet, you know, the Hebrew writer, the Holy Spirit, tells us when they did this, you know. You, know, you wouldn't be hiding your baby if you were not afraid of him being found. And yet he says they were, they were hiding him by faith. How is that a demonstration of God's hand working through the parents of Moses? Clearly there's some fear there. But, there's, you know, but it's not a fear... That's going to deter them from what? Doing everything they can to save their child. Brenda. They would have had to do that with Aaron. Say it again. They would have had to have done that with Aaron also. Y- yes. Mm-hmm. Right, because he, he was uh, close in age. Right. And so you think about, you know, you know uh, the combination of our faith and fear working together here. And so, yes, you know, they want to save their kids. Every parent does. And, and so there's some fear because you've got this civil authority that's given basically, you know, everyone the right to, 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 to grab your child and throw it in the river. Or at least your sons. 
And so by faith, you go, you know, you, you, you act in this way because, you know, saving your child is worth the risk. But let's move on. Okay, so that's what, you know, the parents do. And of course, by faith, she's going to put them out there in the, in, in, in the reeds. You know, uh, I think there's some planning there that's implied. Uh, uh, I'm, you know, my, my you know, thought is she knew, knew who would be coming by. You know, this is, you're not placing just, you know, by chance, whoever finds him, find my son in the reef. No, I think there, it's God's hand at work, working through a strong uh, man and woman of faith who's willing to, yes, you know, to, to take these risks and basically, in a sense, and, and take the very steps. Because at a recent point, you can't keep hiding an infant. You know, they're getting too big to hide, you know, at least just in your own, in your own dwelling. So you've got to find some other measures. And so that's what happens here. And so you think about the idea of God's hand in using Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this is the daughter of which Pharaoh? I'm not looking for a name. Because we don't know the name of the Pharaoh. That's been the Pharaoh that issued the decree to Yes. It's the daughter of the Pharaoh that issued the decree... To have all baby boys thrown in the Nile. And it's that daughter that finds Moses in the basket near the place where she bathes. She opens it up and finds a crying child. What did she have the authority to do right then? Drown that boy. She had the authority. Her father, the king, had given everybody that authority. Every Egyptian. But instead, she has pity. She has compassion. She recognizes that this, this must be a Hebrew child. And she knows what... But God uses her to save Moses. I think this is evidence that God knows the hearts of all people. Because it, to me it's evidence that he... Knew what her heart would be. Yes, I think that's a good point. You know, and you you contrast the fact that him knowing uh, her heart and and God, yes, knows the hearts of all men, but you think contrast her heart that God knew to the heart that God knows her father, you know, has, and the heart that you know the later Pharaoh will have. When Moses returns to lead them out of captivity, God knows each of their hearts. And here is, here is a heart of an Egyptian woman who has compassion on the life of a Hebrew child, a slave boy. And to the point that she, you know, she is willing to take that child into her care. Now, for time, puts it in, you know, in the care of the mother to nurse. You know, but when she, you know, he reaches an age where he's no longer needed to be nursed, you know, the mother gives her son away. Gives her son to the daughter of Pharaoh. Almost sounds a little bit like Hannah and Eli. And regarding Samuel. Trusting God will take care. God has taken care of Moses so far. 
God will continue to take care of Moses. And so I think when you see what you see in all this is the idea that you know God is using God is using you know men to achieve the purpose he needs them to be. And so you know he grows up, you know he grows you know and is raised in the courts of of Egypt. He's raised as nobility. Acts talks about how he was, he was taught in, in, and learned in all the ways of the Egyptians. And so Moses is educated extremely well in that, you know, you know, it is believed in that time period, you know, you know, you know, foreign nations would send their children to Egypt to be schooled. And that's what Mo, Moses was schooled in Egypt. He grows up there and then was again, the whole point is about the relationship God has with the nation of Israel. And so they're raised, he grows up, he decides one day when he's a man now, in chapter 2, and he's going to go visit his brethren. And I find it interesting, here is an educated Hebrew uh, who is being treated as Egyptian nobility, but he never... Stop remembering his heritage. He never stopped caring about his heritage. And although he was raised in a different culture, it never changed his heart. And so he goes, and when he sees his fellow countrymen being mistreated, he takes action into his own hands. Yeah, and he does this, we're told, in Acts 7. Why? What did Moses think about himself at this point in his life? In Acts 7. He thought what about himself? He thought God... What? Remember? That God had basically chosen him to deliver his people. He thought this was the time... And so when he goes out to visit his people to see how they're doing, and he sees one being mistreated, he, he, he defends his fellow Hebrewmen, Hebrew, Hebrew kinsmen, he kills the Egyptian, hides the, the body of Egyptian. All that is transpired because Moses thought he, you know, his life was spared, you know, preserved as it was to be the savior of his people. Was it? Yes. But what's the difference? The difference is timing. The difference is maturity. And so when Moses thought he was ready, he wasn't. When he had all this confidence about himself, when he had all, you know, all this, you know, uh, I don't know, like sense of esteem and, uh, and willpower and motivation... And had all these qualities that we'd have thought, well, those are good things if you're going to be a leader. Uh, it was the wrong time. He takes it into his own hands. So when, when, when does God pick him? Of course, he's going to pick him 40 years later. So he's about 40 years old here in chapter 2. And because of this, he runs, runs away... You know, uh, he says, you know, the news gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is seeking to kill him. So he, he flees for fear of his life. And yet Hebrews tells us by faith, 
he forsook Egypt. And so, once again, you see fear and faith working together. And I would suggest you the difference there is he had a, you know, his fear did not deter Moses from siding with his brethren. His fear did not deter Moses from obeying God's word as you see him growing up in that way. But you, you think about this idea of timing and you come, okay, so he's in Midian. He, he you know, marries Zipporah. He now is a shepherd. He goes from... Egyptian nobility to being a shepherd, you know, out in the wilderness. And that's where you come to chapter 3 and 4, where God appears on the scene. Forty years later, you know, at a time when Moses lacks confidence, but he's the perfect heart to be used. Now, it takes a little bit of convincing. You know, to get him where he needs to be. But about interesting, you think of the idea here. God chose the time. God chose the place. He chose 40 years after the incident in chapter 2. And he chooses a wilderness you know, near Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, when Moses is alone with sheep. God chose that when he appeared to him. And you think about, you know, when he appears to him and, and there in chapter 3, I would suggest to you what God does. He reveals to Moses that he is, that Jehovah is the living God. He's a personal God. He's a compassionate God. He's a purposeful God. He's a powerful God. He's a faithful God. All of those attributes are found in chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3 and 4 is not just about Moses. It's about God. We need to see God. And God's revealing himself to Moses. And Moses you know, is taking some growing up here. It's a quick lesson. Yeah. But he's having to, to, to grow up. And you think about this idea of, of the conversation. And, and you're, as students, you're all familiar with this, these chapters, the conversation. And so you think Moses' excuses. Okay, He starts off by saying, well, who am I? That's how it starts off. Who am I? Is basically my paraphrase of it. What's he, what's he basically saying? He's saying about himself. Not worthy. Not worthy. You know, he's lacking esteem. He's lacking confidence. He's lacking strength. I mean, who am I for this job? His next thing is, well, what's your, what's your name, God? You know, what, what, what's, what's, it, what, what's he trying to play with that, that excuse? Ignorance. You know, you know, what will I tell the people? You know, you know, what's your name? You know, they don't know your name, God. And so he's kind of playing, well, you know, this whole idea of ignorance. So, you know, think about how, you know, think about these excuses. They're not so far removed from our own excuses. When it talks about when we're called into service, when we're called to teach, when we're called to give a defense of the faith within us, when we're called to lay down our life for another. Sometimes we make the same excuses. It may be worded a little bit different. But it's the same excuses. A lack of confidence or ignorance. What about the one? Well, the people may not believe you. They may not believe me when I tell them. What's that? Doubt. Doubt that God can succeed through you. And what about, I'm not eloquent. You know, I'm, I, I don't talk very well. Even though Acts tells us that he was mighty in word. 
He may not have been eloquent, but Moses' words carried weight. <laughs> they were powerful words when Moses spoke. But when he, when he tries to excuse it, well, I'm, I'm not eloquent. What, what's, that, what's that excuse? Inadequacy. That's what that is. And finally he says, well, just, just send someone else. And that one is just refusal. I don't want to do it. Think about all those excuses that Moses throws out. You know, and of course, you know, we think, oh, Moses, you know, he should have known better. What about our excuses when God calls us into action? When there's a mission in front of us. And so God then gives them assurance. Very quickly as the class is coming out, you know, you know I'll kind of run through those. You think of the assurances of God. You know, uh, you know, when he, one, he says, I will be with you and you will return here. You will come back to the same mountain. That's the first assurance. I'm going to be with you. Does God give you that assurance? I, you, know, you do my will. I will be with you. Yeah, he gives you assurance. Now, does it mean what you're asked to do is going to be easy? You know, and it, 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 it may it won't have any you know kind of hesitancy. Well, no, those are natural reactions to you know, we have as humans. Then he, another uh, assurance is when he gives his name. He said, "Well, you know, what's your name?" He said, "Well, I am. That's my name, Jehovah." The word Jehovah comes from the, the a root verb meaning to be. And he says, just, you know, that's who I am. I am. And he goes on to say, I appear to your fathers. You know, I'm the same. And you think about it. I am. I appear to your fathers and I'm concerned about you. Has God changed? No, it hasn't changed a bit. You know, the idea of God being I am, I am or God being Jehovah. You know, he does it. He's referred, he says, to the patriarchs, you know, I refer to you as El Shaddai, you know, God Almighty. But the real significance of that wasn't evident until Moses' time when God is ready to go into a covenant relationship with his people. Then, he says, this is who I am. I'm the eternal, absolute, self-existent one. And so God goes through all of these assurances to basically tell Moses, I am can help you overcome any defect you have or think you have. Whatever it is, there's nothing that should deter you from carrying out my mission. Thank you very much for your attention and your, your thoughts and, and all the particip participation that you gave me tonight. Thank you.